Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the only podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history, and its people. Your host, Roberto Matza, will bring you guests discussing their relationship with the Holy City. A journey through history, society, feelings, and hopes for the future. Follow the podcast on all social media platforms at Jerusalem Unplugged. Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, your podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history, and its people. Today, I have a great pleasure to host Sari Zanariri. Sari is an artist and a cultural historian. His interests sit at the intersection of religion, colonialism, and visual culture, with a particular focus on the ways in which social and cultural histories can explicate the contemporary. With Sari, we're going to talk about uh, Western vision and photography of Jerusalem in history, and also through his latest uh, exhibitions, we're going to talk about uh, pictures of contemporary Jerusalem, and in particularly of Mamela. Without further ado, Sari, welcome. Thanks, Roberto. Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged. And as usual, the first question is, what is your Jerusalem? In other words, what is your connection? To the city? Um, well, I suppose there's a few different uh, kinds of connections that I have to Jerusalem. Uh, one is coming from a, a Jerusalemite family. Uh, so the Zenoneries are from Jerusalem. They're uh, a Greek Orthodox family. Um, but during my uh, undergraduate studies, I started getting a little bit interested in site responsive and site specific artwork. Uh, so thinking about how you can respond to a certain place and work within that. So when I started doing my postgraduate work, one of the things that I started th really thinking about is, is about Jerusalem as a site of absence. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, particularly growing up in Australia, for the most part, as a diaspora Palestinian, there was this very interesting kind of space in which to think about the city, which is, you know, I mean, it's so photographed and it's such a part of, you know, uh, Western visual culture in many respects, particularly religious Western visual culture. And so I started thinking about how I could kind of work with some of those images um, as an artist. And, and I, I suppose that's both how I got interested in it as an artist, but also as a scholar, 
Sorry. Then this leads me to ask you a question. So are you an artist or are you a scholar? Well, my PhD, uh, which is, I believe, not very common outside of Australia, it was actually a practice-based PhD. So it was a studio PhD in which I produced both artwork as well as a, a PhD uh, thesis or, or dissertation. Um, so, you know, for me, I, I don't, I see the relationship between an art practice and a more sort of textual academic practice as, as being quite integrated rather than something that's separate. Um, and I also think when I'm um, when I'm considering different ideas and, uh, you know, there's different ways of engaging different audiences with similar material, although in very different ways, through uh, whether, whether it's through, you know, making an artwork, curating an exhibition, or writing a uh, journal article or, um, a book or whatever it happens to be. So I think, um, you know, in some ways, um, it's a very porous relationship for me. And I find that the two um, interact in different ways. I also think coming from a an arts background, um, you have a slightly different uh, approach to, uh, to how you think about images and how you think about um, uh, how artworks function and how culture functions, you know. Uh, I suppose there's sort of questions that get thrown up about the intent of an artist or an author or uh, how things get read, what the slippage is between those things, um, how different images might relate to other images on a formal level rather than um, on a historical level. And so I think, you know, in some ways there is a slightly different way of thinking about things which, uh, you know, is sort of perhaps a little bit more unusual in historical kind of contexts. Um, so I think, you know, in some ways there is a sort of a visual literacy which kind of positions you in such a way that you can think slightly differently about how, uh, how to read an image and how an image kind of functions within a sort of a public space. Does that make sense? Absolutely, and it's fascinating to see how passion and work can come together and produce something original and, and different. Uh, and in this case, I really want to start uh, uh, asking questions to Sari, the scholar, but I'm pretty sure that Sari, the artist, will come into the conversation. You published an article on the Jerusalem Quarterly a few years back, and the article talked about uh, how Jerusalem was represented in biblical, in Western, better say, biblical uh, imagery and imagination. Can you take us through a journey to, in order to understand how the West essentially captured Jerusalem through photography using the lenses of the Bible? Yeah, look, I, I mean, I think... Um... Partially, it's to do with technology in the first instance. Uh, you know, uh, photography is something that uh, was invented in 1839 and it spread quite rapidly. But certainly within early photographic technological development, you know, you had very long exposure time. So you tended to have, you know, those early photographic images, they didn't tend to have people so much. So people is something that you kind of get later on in the sort of 1860s, 1870s. But I think one of the things that's so fascinating about 
photography in Palestine and indeed in the region more generally is that there does seem to be a little bit of a lag, you know, between um, the photographing of these landscapes and the photographing of people within those landscapes. So I think in some ways the sort of technological floor of photography actually had quite significant impacts on um, on the Eastern Mediterranean. And we see similar things with, uh, say, the imaging of Greece as well, you know, these very ancient landscapes, these sort of um, biblical sites in the case of Palestine or ruins in, you know, the case of Greece or, uh, you know, the Northern Levant or Egypt or, you know, things like the pyramids. So there is actually much less interest in terms of a Western consumer of photography in the people that, that are there themselves. Um, so we start to get this sort of precedent that's set visually in culture about this empty landscape. Uh, so for someone like Hassan Nassad, he would call this biblification uh, in the case of Palestine. So thinking about these sort of Christian narratives. And when we start to look at the ways in which the West is interacting with the region more generally, we do start to see when we look at diaries or memoirs or many of the, the published books on Palestine, we do see this sort of biblical cartography where where people are kind of essentially using biblical text to read the landscape. They're not really interested in modern Palestine or modernity, modernity in the cultural sense rather than the historical sense. They're interested in these sort of ancient places. And so, you know, it, it, long before 1948, we get this sort of like, um, this sort of empty landscapes that would come to support like a, a, the Zionist idea of a land without people for a, for a people without land. This sort of, you know, this is something that, that long, uh, you know, long predates Zionism in a, a very interesting way visually. When we do start getting images of people um, in the first instance, they tend to be more studio based uh, rather than in the open. Uh, and we see people like Bonfils, for instance, um, who was a Frenchman who uh, started a photographic studio in Beirut. You know, he's taking photos of um, authentic Samaritans, authentic Bedouins, authentic, you know, Jews, authentic. You know, when we actually start looking at his photography, one of the things that's so interesting is that you see the same models depicting these authentic frameworks time and time again. And that's a kind of a, a, a very, I mean, you know, uh, we sort of have to start thinking a little bit about what it is that we're actually looking at. And that's when photography starts to get very interesting for me personally, because, you know, we have these sort of commercial studios. We have people who are more interested in, um, you know, scholarly activities, whether they're archaeologists or ethnographers or uh, historians. And also have these sort of very interesting links to um, espionage in terms of photography. You know, certainly when we look at somebody like, um, uh, Charles Wilson of the Royal Engineers, who um, who put together the uh, the Ordnance Survey of Jerusalem in um, in the 1860s. Um, you know, Wilson, although he wasn't taking the photographs themselves, he was commissioning them. Uh, you know, he he certainly had these sort of amazing landscape photos of a city like Jerusalem, um, but were ostensibly for uh, the idea of you know bringing water supplies and firming up Jerusalem's water supplies. But he also went on later later on in life to be the um, uh, to set up what became British military intelligence and eventually MI5. So, you know, when we think about photography, we really need to think a lot about the intent of photographers um, and what they're doing, but also about how we can read the photographs themselves. 
Um, and I think, you know, one of the things that's so interesting when we start looking at a lot of these photo archives of Palestine is that there is this very interesting intersection of popular culture of um, sort of more scholarly kind of work and then this sort of genre of military intelligence, which kind of sits on the peripheries of all of that. But often these three operate in tandem. So when we think about the history of photography in Palestine, it is in many ways entwined with colonialism, you know, whether it's on a sort of a popular imaginary level, whether it's on a scholarly level, or whether it is through these sort of more military kinds of uh, means. So I think, you know, it occupies a very distinct place in Palestinian history to me. This is wonderful. And while you were talking about photography and the various uses made by either, you know, sort of um, colonial projects or the military, you briefly mentioned also uh, the commercial aspect, and it made me think if there were any particular places where photographers, whether Westerners or locals, would stop, take a picture, and then essentially make a living out of uh, you know those pictures. Are there any particular places through the city of Jerusalem, other than Panorama, and obviously we're going to talk about uh, one of the most important panorama that you are discussed in your work, any location throughout the city that was considered like um, somehow the most important, uh, you know, a location that could be uh, photographed and then easily sold uh, either in Jerusalem or even abroad? Yeah, look, I mean, I think um, I think there's a number of locations like that. You know, I mean, one of the, the sort of the, the most famous would be um, the view of Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. And I, I mean, I have to say, I've probably seen literally thousands of <laughs> of those photos, and it's very fascinating because you, you know, when you start to survey the same the same photo taken from the same vantage point over time, you start to get um, a very distinct sense of this sort of build up and the changes, you know, in terms of urban planning, etc. But I think the other thing that you asked um, was about locals and visiting photographers. And I think um, that's worth unpacking a little bit as well, um, because I think local photographers and visiting photographers are two different categories, even though their interests often overlap. Um, I mean, visiting photographers generally were interested in um, these kind of more biblical kind of narratives. Local photographers, on the other hand, I mean, they certainly were interested in that for a Western market, but they're also taking a very different set of photographs which are of local people for local consumption and so you know i think there's a sort of a very interesting kind of interplay that that happens between local and um foreign photographers in terms of the the, the photographing of palestine i mean i think uh, some of the more famous examples people like um Khalil Raab, for instance you know i mean he took plenty of these very sort of biblical images but they are slightly different i mean they're still aimed at a western market uh, and, you know, we get classic images like um, the one that he uh, has of a girl who's uh, collecting wheat, which he titles Ruth the Gleaner. And, I mean, it feels, feel, falls very much into this sort of trope of images that are um, for Western consumption. But if we look at the way she um, she's interacting with the camera, she's looking directly at the camera lens, there's a bit more of a sort of a sense of her own self and a, a, a sense of confidence um, whereas often when we look at some of these sort of Bonfils photos, they're not looking directly at the camera 
or, um, you know, I mean, the famous kind of uh, example that Ilyas Sandbach puts together are the two photos of um, a girl from uh, Bethlehem, both titled A Girl from Bethlehem, one of um, uh, by Bonfils and one by Khalil Rad. And the, the difference between the two photos is quite remarkable. You know, um, the Bonfils photograph, you know, she's not really, and they're both basically wearing exactly the same costume. But in the Bonfils one, she's not looking at the camera. She's sort of slightly reclined. She's a, a little bit sort of withdrawn versus the Rad photograph where she's looking directly into the camera. She's smiling. She's looking quite gregarious and happy and upbeat. Um, you know, and I, I think that Rad photo is one of the photos that kind of starts getting us to think a little bit about the ways in which um, the context of a photograph being taken might affect its meaning. Now, knowing Bonfils's work, we know that he's probably just given whatever model a, a Bethlehemite costume. With the Rad photograph, on the other hand, it's quite possible that she's a model, but it's also quite possible that she's engaging in this sort of Palestinian tradition of dressing up in costume and having your photo taken. And I think that's a really interesting sort of thing to think about because these middle-class Palestinians very rarely wore these traditional costumes. They were, you know, they were, uh, you know, they were urban. They were wearing suits, ties, dresses, etc., in the Western style. You know, sometimes with the tarbush or something like that. But but uh, you know, it's a very sort of different relationship. So a photograph like that starts to throw up some very interesting questions about who that person was and she was interacting. And I think, you know, within that genre of what I sometimes call Bedouin drag, for want of a better term, uh, you know, there is there's sort of multiple things that, you know, multiple suppositions that we might make. You know, is this uh, a projection of nationalism? Is this a sort of a classist joke? Is this, uh, you know, uh, a means of sort of claiming some sort of indigeneity? Uh, so I think, you know, when we start sort of thinking about some of these photographs and these sort of um, quite famous biblical or oriental tropes, to go back, circle back to your original question, like I think we need to sort of think about the ways in which a photograph might not give us a full story, you know, about reading a sort of a larger context, not just about a famous site, but even sort of a, a well-known trope of imaging. Thinking about uh, the question of... Uh photographs and stories, I was wondering if the Zanariri family moving away from Jerusalem brought back pictures, photographs, and if you had a chance to access that material and perhaps share with us some of those stories that are embedded within those pictures. Yeah, well, one of the one of my favorite uh, of the Zenaniri photos is um, actually a photograph of my grandfather and a friend of his, uh, and they are they are dressed up in costume in this photo. Um, his friend is wearing a abaya and a kafiya and agal, and my grandfather, who I have to say I always knew as a very stern Palestinian patriarch, you know. It was not a man that during my childhood ever seemed to have any sort of sense of humor is sitting there and he's, he's dressed up in a dress. So, <laughs> so he's actually cross-dressing <laughs> wearing this, uh, 
<laughs> wearing this, um, the, 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 you know, the, the, sort of playing this role of a woman uh, within this sort of very, very sort of stereotypical kind of um, village slash Bedouin drag photo. So not only is there a sort of a transgression of class boundaries, but there's a sort of a sort of a gender transgression there. And I, I remember when I first saw that photo, I, I thought it was the most hilarious thing ever. <laughs> Uh, so I think, um, you know, I think that's sort of partially, you know, one of the things that I find so interesting about photography is how it perhaps upsets some of these sort of narratives that we that we bring to to them when we start to look at them. Your grandfather it sounds like very... uh, was a man of a great sense of humour. <laughs> I suspect he must have been at some point in his life, but I missed out on most of it, unfortunately. <laughs> Staying on this and thinking and reflecting upon the values of pictures, I was wondering, what is the range of emotions that you experience when you unpack a photo album, when you start looking at pictures of Jerusalem, whether it's a panorama, a view, a building, or even photographs, including individuals, people, real women, men, children, walking around the streets of, of Jerusalem. Yeah, look, I mean, I think um, it obviously depends on the, the contents of an archive. Um, and I've also spent quite a, I mean, I've spent the last 10 years of my life now looking at um, photographs, particularly of Jerusalem, but of Palestine generally. Um, so I do feel like I, um, I mean, in some ways, I, I think um, what I look for and what I get excited by is something that's a little bit different. Um, I mean, I think when we, you know, to go back to those sort of classic scenes of, you know, Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives or uh, the facade of the Holy Sepulchre or the various sort of holy sites, there is something very interesting about them in their accumulation over time. Um, but there's something quite special when you start delving through these um, archives, when you start to find everyday scenes or family albums or um, images of people kind of going about their daily routine, uh, because you start to see a different sort of Jerusalem, like it's a much more social space. Um, one of the photographers who I've been doing a lot of work on is uh, a Dutch photographer called uh, Frank Scholten, for instance. Um, and he's a very curious character, you know. Uh, he goes off to Palestine with this idea of producing an illustrated Bible. He takes approximately 20,000 photographs in the early 1920s. Um, but one of the things about the Scholten collection that I really love is that um, they're really animated photos, you know. He's going at a time when you had portable cameras that were relatively available. Uh, you know, he comes from this background of the Dutch aristocracy, so he, I mean, the finances don't play any sort of role in, in sort of guiding his lens. So he's able to financially take as many photos as he wants, but also he's not necessarily thinking about photography in a commercial sense. Uh, in terms of what people will buy, you know, so it is sort of this very, uh, it's very much an individual's um, perspective on Palestine. Um, admittedly, he spent a lot more time taking photos in Jaffa than he did in Jerusalem. 
But when we start to look at his photos of Jerusalem, we get this like amazing sense of how Palestinian communal life was changing in the early 1920s, you know, particularly in a very ethnically diverse city like Jerusalem. You know, we get these images of Armenians, we get the sort of the beginnings of Jewish communities establishing themselves. We get, you know, uh, many, many photos of Christians because that's his main sort of, you know, drive. We get photos of well-known personalities like uh, Ya'ub Bukhari. We get, you know, um, all of these sort of, you know, these sort of, like you start to get a sense of like the social life of the city. So, So I think for me, um, there's a sense of excitement when I find photographs that, that give me some sort of sense of that sociality, you know. Um, I mean, obviously, there's plenty of archaeologists who took photos, and those photos are interesting in a different way. But there's only so many sort of, you know, so much excitement that you can expend on, you know, holes in the ground or rocks or... <laughs> So I think the thing that floats my boat is, is, is the sort of social sense of the city. Given your work as a scholar, so your professional approach to photography, but also your sensibility as an artist, I was just thinking when you were talking about this photographer, this Dutch photographer, are you able to essentially take their place in front, behind the camera? In other words, can you put yourself in the place of a photographer and see what they can see, see what they saw or experience what they were trying to communicate? Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I mean, 
mean, I think with the work on Scholten in particular, um, I don't know how successful it is to uh, imagine that I can take his place, but I, I do feel like there is a sort of a sensitivity to thinking about how he thinks. And one of the things that I do really appreciate about him in particular, apart from the very large amount of photographs that he took, he also collected photographs of Palestine. Um, and so in some ways, I, I think he's a really interesting case study for someone like me because he is on the one hand collecting images as well as making them himself. Um, and I think, you know, there's something kind of fascinating when I dig through his archive of photographs and see some of his annotations and, uh, you know, a lot of them have um, a biblical verse on them. So when you start thinking about the biblical verse and how that relates to the image and trying to sort of understand some of his religiosity, you, you know, it's like, uh, I mean, it is very much an artist's archive. It's, um, you know, I think... Uh, He's a very difficult person to pin down in many ways because he was interested in so many different things. And uh, when we look at the sort of the texts that he was referencing, he was looking at theological texts and language comparison between different versions of Bible. He was looking at Palestinian history. He's looking at, theolo you know, sort of popular theological tracts. He's looking at, you know, um, uh, sort of imaging of the Bible in art history, you know, he's got this whole collection of postcards and you start to see all of these sort of religious narratives that kind of play out in different ways. He was also queer and had this real fixation on the figure of David, which is a really interesting kind of case study when we sort of think about the, you know, the sort of uh, David as a sort of a symbol in the Renaissance and how he's sort of being reinterpreted and reinterpreted and then reinterpreted again, you know. Uh, you know, and some of that collection of David, I mean, it runs from very famous renditions like uh, Michelangelo's David through to a version by Arnold Zadikov, uh, who was a Jewish artist who uh, produced this sort of this new Jewish David, uh, you know, uh, Zadikov, interestingly enough, would go on to um, design the, um, uh, the the tomb for Magnus Hirschfeld after he died. Um, uh, so there's also this sort of strange kind of queer connection there that sort of cycles around. So, so he's sort of, you know, I mean, there is a sort of a sense of a... I'm, I, 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 my historian self doesn't feel like I can kind of make this comment, but <laughs> but my artist self, <laughs> you know, I think it's a slightly different story. But I do sort of get the impression that Scholten is someone who's really very actively trying to justify his homosexuality through biblical narrative when you start looking at that. And so it's sort of, um, yeah, because a really interesting archive in terms of trying to understand a personality, if that makes sense. Well, it makes absolutely sense. And I was thinking about uh, the question of representation, taking pictures of others sometimes is a way to express yourself. So uh, obviously, uh, you know, even talking about David and the fact that there's been plenty of speculation and studies about the sexuality of David. So that that makes kind of a statement, I would say, out in the public. Now, talking about mm. uh, your work, there is one light motive 
like uh, a picture that I've seen, uh, uh, you know, discussed uh, many times in your work, uh, which is the pig lime uh, panorama. Um, and I really hope also to post this picture uh, as a sort of a face for uh, this podcast. Uh, and I was wondering if you can tell us uh, what is this, what is this panorama is, what does it represent and why it's so important? Yeah, look, I mean, the, the Pigelheim panorama is, it's fascinating, um, you know, because it sort of, again, draws on a whole series of different things. Um, and it's also the first of what became a family of panoramas of Jerusalem on the day of the crucifixion. Um, for those who might not be so familiar with the form of the panorama, it's essentially a, a 360 degree painting. So it's kind of like um, a, a pre-cinema a pre version of cinema. Um, and they were quite a serious commercial enterprise, um, particularly in the 19th century, but also before that. Um, so the, the, they tend to be quite large paintings. Um, I think uh, Pigelheim's original pan panorama was about 10 or 11 metres high and something like 100 metres in circumference. Um, and when you enter one of these panoramas, you 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 get your ticket as you would for uh, going into the cinema, and then you walk through a dark hall, and then up a spiral staircase onto a central platform, and from there you're you're completely immersed in the panorama. So, um, Pigelheim panorama originally was sort of a German response to. Um, to the sort of the Belgian monopoly on panoramas that was going on in the sort of uh, sort of late 1870s uh, into the 1880s, uh, and it took him about four years to actually produce the panorama. Uh, panoramas, mostly the the genre of panoramas, generally was more um, sort of contemporary cityscapes or historical battle scenes. There were other sort of themes that they had. But there is something very unusual in the picking of a historical context for for the depiction of Jerusalem. So even even other panoramas that were taken in the region, whether they were of Constantinople or Cairo or uh, other major cities, they showed them in their 19th century actuality. So, I mean, I think this sort of, on the one hand, hints at how lucrative the biblical was in terms of marketing to a Western audience, um, but also kind of, speaks to some of the exceptionalism that had developed out of photography around the ways in which Palestine was was imaged and photographed. Um, now, the panorama uh, was a, a complete success, and it actually led to a copy that was produced in London. Uh, the the, the Pigelheim's panorama had been on display in Munich and was supposed to go to London. So, so actually, there was a whole legal case that went went on around between these two rival panorama countries, uh, companies. Um, so while Pigelheim was um, uh, contractually contractually obliged not to copy the panorama, the artists who worked on the team weren't. So this this spawned a whole series of these different panoramas that were, um, you know, sort of shown throughout Europe and North America, and you know. Uh, there's only three of them left out of, I think there was 14 or 15 in total, if I recall correctly, uh, which is a little bit sad. But it does sort of show how powerful this sort of biblical image was. Um, 
Uh, and the fact that they went to the trouble of sort of suing this company who showed the panorama in London, you know, it gives a sense of the amounts of money that were also involved in um, uh, in the sort of the production of these panoramas. But on a visual level, it's it's such a spectacular thing to see them. I remember seeing the there's one in um, Quebec in Canada. Uh, so I went to have a look at it, and it really, you know, it, it it's quite an experience, you know. And I think the logic of it, it it um, because it's circular, it's sort of, you know, you wind up looping back to the beginning of the story. And the ways in which they're painted, they're very, very simply, you know, I mean, the quality of the painting is amazing. So um, when Pickelheim went to Palestine, he took many, many photos and made all of these preparatory sketches. So on the one hand, he's very faithful to the topography of Jerusalem. But on the other hand, in terms of the content that kind of goes in there, you know, there's a completely sort of um, fantastical sort of element to the painting itself. You know, it's not at all based on um, the physical Jerusalem of the 19th century beyond this sort of um, this topography. And, you know, kind of coming from this background of panorama painting where authenticity is, is the thing that's really used to sell them, he's really kind of um, playing on the idea of authenticity and presenting an authentic first century Jerusalem to the general public. Um, and so, you know, when we really think about that and how that relates back to photography, you know, there's something really fascinating there because he's taking all of these photos, which are then made seamless through the act of painting the panorama. And one of the things that's very interesting about the panorama is that it's a very populated space. So where a lot of photos in that period don't have a lot of people in them, there are actually many, many people in, in the panorama, uh, whether that's sort of um, key players like Christ and the Roman soldiers and, uh, you know, the Virgin Mary and, uh, you know, th those sorts of players or all of these sort of um, what we might call filler kind of um, people, you know, and one of the things that's very interesting about them is that they're all wearing 19th century Palestinian costume. And so, again, you know, sort of thinking back to photography and, and this sort of question of authenticity, you know, there is this thing that gets established in this period that that that, that is sort of like an idea of what authentically first century looks like. And that's basically 19th century rural Palestinian. And so, you know, we get this very sort of interesting interplay where costuming becomes kind of equated with authenticity, whether that's in a Bonfils photograph or in a panorama or indeed later on in Hollywood cinema. <laughs> so there's something very interesting about these sort of visual kind of conventions that becomes made concrete in that second half of the 19th century in this visual culture. These panorama essentially were some sort of a, a 3D experience before 3D was invented. Um, and I wish one day I'm going to try to experience that. Um, it sounds really fascinating just to somehow walk uh, through a painting and get the sense of, in this case, of a crucifixion, which was, I guess, a very interesting choice. But um, commercially speaking, I suppose, very successful. You mentioned Hollywood. And I was uh, wondering before we're going to move and talk about uh, Sari, the artist, uh, how does Hollywood uh, paint Jerusalem? Uh, is there any way you came across how Hollywood, 
discussing, you know, painting, also through photography, image, uh, the city of Jerusalem. Yeah, look, absolutely. I, I mean, I think Hollywood, um, I mean, Hollywood has had a, 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 I mean, I think it takes a lot of its cues from photography, but it's had a very significant impact on the way Jerusalem is, um, is imaged. I mean, if we look at um, the interwar period, uh, you know, we we get a lot of um, Hollywood biblical epics that are produced there. You know, there's quite a number by Cecil B. DeMille, there's King of Kings, there's uh, a whole bunch of them. One of the things that's very interesting about silent film um, is that it, it, it has these intertitles, you know, where you get the textual sections. And there's a sort of an interplay between these moving tableaus and these textual sections that, 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 that interpret what you've just seen, whether that's through dialogue or whatever. And I think this sort of interplay between image and text, it, it, it's, it's really, it's, it's a very interesting one in the case of Palestine, particularly in terms of biblical reading, because there is always this sort of sense of flicking backwards and forwards between between the image and text, you know, how how do we read this landscape? We read it through text, you know, whether, you know, through biblical text. We often see with the photographs that are produced that there is a, like a written annotation interpreting what's there or putting a little biblical verse in or, or whatever it happens to be. And I think, you know, even though the silent films of the interwar period are, um, you know, I mean, they are actual films and the film industry would change when sound isn't, you know, um, but they are sort of somehow working within these sort of biblical conventions in a, in a way that that is slightly different to, uh, say, a more secular film about a love story or a, a swashbuckling pirate adventure or uh, whatever it happens to be. But the thing that's so fascinating is that they pick up on this question of costuming. So you do see kafirs of a certain variety. You do see veils. You do see all of this sort of costuming that was still quite contemporary in that period being played out as authentically biblical. And that definitely carries through to, you know, Hollywood cinema of the post-war period. By the time we get to the post-war period, we get a very distinct sort of shift and a very politicised shift. You know, um, so we start seeing a lot of these sort of Hollywood epics that are essentially using biblical narrative within a sort of a broader Cold War narrative. Um, so we start to see these very interesting sort of um, interplay of geopolitics. Um, you know, uh, Christianity becomes a, a liberatory force and a force for democracy, and it's about fighting empire uh, and fighting this sort of, you know, this corrupt Roman old world. And so we sort of see America marking itself through biblical narrative. And when we start getting to some of the later ones, you know, in the 60s, rather than the ones that are sort of late 40s and 50s, we get films like um, George Stevens' Greatest Story Ever Told. And, and, and I, I mean, I, I, to be honest, I find it a terribly boring film, but from a from a sort of an analytical perspective, it is fascinating. You know? <laughs> I mean, George Stevens, you know, he went through, like Pickleheim, he went through this, this enormous process of research. It took him 10 years to, um, to develop the script for the greatest story ever told. Uh, and he, you know, uh, he interviewed people from the Pope through to Menachem Begin in, in terms of developing the script. Uh, 
And, it, you know, when he decided, was thinking about filming locations, he made this really interesting comment, you know, because he decided in the end to film it in the US. Uh, and he says something like, um, the, the Colorado is not the River Jordan, but we can do it better here. <laughs> so there's a whole remaking of the biblical image in the image of America that goes on. That's It's super fascinating. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like uh, Hollywood always had uh, an eye on the city of Jerusalem and on Palestine, uh, obviously for commercial reasons, but in the end, they never really captured the city and the region itself. Uh, I mean, even uh, uh, the passion uh, of Mel Gibson was eventually shot in this uh, city in, in the south of Italy, Matera. Um, mm -hmm. so, so in the end, uh, Jerusalem is the object, but never becomes the subject, or maybe the opposite, is the subject of the movies, but never becomes really the object of filming. And uh, it's only, I, I would say, more of a contemporary industry uh, really taking, uh, you know, steps forward to use this city locations, even though there are obvious compli complications due to, uh, uh, you know, the current politics. Sari Zanarir, the artist, and I have a couple of questions before we come to an end of our podcast. First of all, I want to mention to our listeners, sarizanariri.net, which is your website. And while I was browsing your artwork, I became fascinated with two of your sort of um, small exhibitions here. One is called Unpicking Jerusalem. And you have an amazing picture taken in Mamilla Market, where you are overlapping, uh, I would say, in early pictures of what it looks like uh, British soldiers essentially walking the same uh, street. What is your, that you are trying to tell people browsing your material I mean, for me, it was fascinating, and I'll tell you how in, you know, sort of the image I had in my mind. I lived in London for quite a long period of time, and, uh, you know, Mamilla reminded me a little bit of Oxford Street, particularly because here you have the big sign, Castro. And when I saw all of these people, you know, British, it really reminded me people walking on Oxford Street, going for a Saturday afternoon shopping. But this is my view. Yeah, look, I mean, I think Mamilla is such a, a fascinating space, geographically speaking, you know. Um, I mean, before 1948, it was the, the geographic heartland of the city, the commercial, the main commercial district. Um, and it's sort of, you know, it's the part of Jerusalem that, that, that um, as the old city started getting crowded and people started moving into the suburbs, it was sort of the the overflow from from the you know Jaffa Gate, which had been the sort of the commercial district into this new commercial district. Um, and so when we kind of um, think about that space, you know, it was a it was a very dynamic space, both both in terms of mercantile pursuits, but also culturally. I mean, still today within Mamilla Mall, there's the facade of a cafe that people like Khalil Sakakini used to um, go to. And so we sort of need to think about this as a sort of a, you know, a central node, but also one that was split in two by, by the Nakba, by 1948. You know, so, so this area kind of went from being the centre to, to, to being a periphery within the divided city. And so for me, you know, there's something fascinating in kind of 
looking at Moshi Safdie's new mall, which um, has won these uh, uh, prizes for uh, heritage protection, which I find personally a little bit ironic, given how very little of the district is actually <laughs> left. <you know? laughs> um, but, you know, there are these sort of elements within the mall that were literally, uh, you know, there's a number of buildings that were taken apart stone by stone, numbered, and then put back together and replaced into it. And so for me, what I found interesting about that space is this sort of attempt to re-stitch something that, 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 you know, I mean, it's, as much as I love Jerusalem, it's a very broken city, you know, <laughs> and this mall is sort of an attempt to sort of patch that over. Uh, and there's something really sort of fascinating about how well that's done on the one hand, but also how badly. <laughs> like when you walk through the mall, the contemporary mall, like you, you know, it does look like it's been there forever. It's made out of the same limestone that most of the city is made out of. It has these arches. It has this sort of opening. I mean, they didn't choose to do something that was, you know, uh, that was enclosed. You know, it does sort of attempt to replicate a sense of what was there. But it's also very much not what was actually there, with the exception of this handful of buildings. I mean, I think one of the other really interesting buildings in that area is the um, the Palestine Broadcasting Services building. Uh, and then there's the Clark House, which is one of the few houses or the few buildings that was never actually moved. But it's it's a very strange space. And part of juxtaposing these two photographs was actually showing just how 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 bizarre that space actually is, you know, because uh, they are photographs of the same, like taken from roughly the same position, showing roughly the same sorts of areas. So uh, they were also printed on glass as well. So there are these um, sort of windows, if you like, that enable the two images or multiple images to be overlaid on top of one another. And part of kind of doing that was sort of thinking about the disruptions to this space and how how even though there's a sort of an attempt to aesthetically make it seamless, there is still a very fundamental disruption. I found personally Mamilla a fascinating place. And every time I'm in Jerusalem, I'm walking down uh, the main street of uh, the Mamilla uh, Mall, and it's hard to understand exactly the, the dynamics that are occurring there because there are obviously, as you mentioned, these buildings were, and these buildings are not artificial because they're made of the same limestone that was there before, but at the same time, it's a reconstruction. And uh, when you look at the crowd, it is it is very much an American crowd in a sense that it's mixed. And in fact, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's about uh, various Jerusalemites coming from different parts of the city plus tourists walking to, together essentially. And yet it feels that these people are separated. And, and this is like my feeling whenever I walk there or I get to, you know, stop for a coffee and I'm listening to conversations via uh, the variety of languages spoken, Hebrew, Arabic, English, French, Spanish, Italian, German, and so forth. And still you get the sense that there is a line separating them. Yeah, yeah. I, I also think there's something fascinating about its geographic positioning because, you know, one end of it is at Jaffa Gate and the other end, you know, puts you firmly in West Jerusalem. 
not that the mall isn't in West Jerusalem anyway, but it's, you know, it's this very sort of interesting kind of um, space, which kind of, you know, it is a space of transition, you know, from from Arab East Jerusalem to to you know Jewish West Jerusalem, and I think that also sort of adds to some of the awkwardness around that space. Uh, you know, in some ways, it it does have some of this cosmopolitanism that it, you know very much has this sort of same sense of cosmopolitanism that it might have had you know in the twenties or thirties or forties. But it's also a very strained cosmopolitanism, which is you know as you as you said you know it's a it makes it a very weird and strange space. And and sometimes I wonder, you know, when I think about the politics, particularly, you know, uh, in the 30s and 40s when things started to get politically tense, was was this like this then or was it something else, you know? And I, I, I don't suppose that's a question that any of us will ever be able to answer, but <laughs> but it's, uh, it's certainly one that I like to pose to myself, you know, <laughs> when thinking about uh, how much things have actually changed. Well, this indeed is a great topic for a further research. Uh, the nature of cosmopolitanism, which you're right, in you know, the current situation when you walk around Manila, uh, you really get the sense that it's cosmopolitan. But then the question is, what kind of cosmopolitanism uh, we, we, we were experiencing when we walk down the moor? You have another series of pictures about still uh, Jerusalem. But my question is very simple. Is your Jerusalem in color or in black and white? Uh, I think I've come to the conclusion that there are many Jerusalems. I, uh, I think one of the things that made me interested in Jerusalem as a city was trying to reconcile all of these images that I'd seen, you know, I used to, I spent my teenage years hunting through secondhand shops for images of Palestine and Jerusalem, among other things, uh, and trying to reconcile these sort of generally very biblical photographs with the sort of family stories that I'd heard of the city. Um, and I mean, I certainly remember the first time I went to Jerusalem, uh, I was 18 at the time, so I was, you know, grown up-ish. <laughs> and I remember it felt very familiar, you know? And I think it felt familiar because, because of family connection, because of seeing all of these photographs, because of seeing, you know. But I do remember this one incident. Uh, we were in the old city as a family. Uh, and I remember there was a, an old man wearing a kafiyah, an abaya. And I can't even remember what part of the old city it was that we were in, but he was walking down a set of stairs. And I remember my, my, my dad said to me, quick, take a photo. And I reflect back on that now. I was a bit too slow with the camera and it was the old days of film. So you, you, had, to, you, know, you had to take a little bit more care. But I do remember sort of that incident very well. And I think to myself, what, what is it about that particular photo that he felt needed capturing? You know? <laughs> Thank you, Sari. It's been great having you here at uh, Jerusalem Unplugged. I hope the listeners enjoyed our conversation. Um, 
please visit sarizanariri.net website to enjoy his exhibitions and join us at all social media platforms, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook page. Please subscribe to our podcast and follow us. And get ready to the next episode of Jerusalem Unplugged. Thank you. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.